earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're taking a break from our series, Oh, That First Means That, because we're in the midst of one of my favorite seasons of the year, Resurrection Season, known by some as Easter, but my preferred expression is Resurrection Season and Resurrection Day, which is fast approaching. Some of you will hear this program before Palm Sunday, while due to programming in other areas, some will hear it after the day we call Palm Sunday. I'll be sharing from Matthew 21, 1-11 which is often referred to as the triumphal entry. In fact, virtually every major English translation of the Bible in print today has in all four Gospels an overhead title in this section, the triumphal entry. And while Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels, each Gospel writer has their own particular emphasis, and their details vary accordingly. So it actually helps to read all four accounts to get a complete picture. And since they're all somewhat compact, it's easy to do. And friends, I'll be calling to our attention passages from Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12, where appropriate. Keep in mind that Matthew's Gospel serves as a bridge between the distinctively Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, and our New Testament. As such, Matthew's Gospel is written for a primarily Jewish audience, and so contains more Old Testament quotations than the others, 93, compared to Mark's 49, Luke's 80, and John's 33. Now, when I read Matthew 21, I'll be inserting into Matthew's account verses from Mark, Luke, and John that are absent from Matthew to create a more complete picture of this key event before us, because I don't want us to miss any of the intricate details, since this is such a crucial and significant moment in Jesus' life, both religiously and politically. So, friends, I'll begin at Matthew 21.1, and I'll clue you in where the other gospel writers supply additional key statements. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. Friends, only Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9 to this extent. But the complete verse actually says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Mark and Luke make no reference to Zechariah's prophecy, and John simply paraphrases it and prefaces his brief paraphrase with, As it is written. Notice Matthew is intentionally messianic in his description, alerting his audience that Jesus' actions fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Additionally, Matthew realizes it's not necessary to quote Zechariah verbatim, since his audience, remember, primarily Jews, will likely have an aha moment and recall Zechariah's statement, or at least the gist of it. You see, friends, what Matthew wants to make sure we don't overlook is that his messianic tie-in is to none other than God himself, Yahweh, the covenant and personal God of the Israelites. So Matthew's smart, isn't he? He's well aware that his Hebrew audience knows full well that God, that Yahweh, is the quintessential king of Israel. In Isaiah 44, 6, we read, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no other God besides me. This is why Philip's words to Nathanael in John chapter 1 are significant. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. From that statement springs Nathaniel's famous words, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then Jesus comes by and begins dialoguing with Nathaniel, to which Nathaniel responds with these equally famous words, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Can you see now, friends, why the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples on that fateful Sunday we call Palm Sunday, after hearing the many praise statements and declarations from the Old Testament, including such buzzwords and phrases as, Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees knew what those cheers were implying. But there's another subtle inference here I want us to notice. When we look at the full statement in Zechariah 9.9, we see that the term gentle describes God. This is the only text in the Old Testament that uses this particular word gentle to describe God. Some appropriate synonyms are lowly, humble, and meek. Words used by other popular and respected English translations. Ding, ding, ding. So, friends, does that description bring any New Testament passages to mind? Describing Jesus? I hope it rings a bell, like Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. You know these words well, don't you? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, or gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, friends, on that fateful Palm Sunday, Jesus permits one rare display of public celebration and enters the capital city of Jerusalem, but in a way quite unlike other typical triumphal entries, because it was common during this time for conquering generals to be given a triumphal entry upon returning to their home city. Waving palm branches was an integral part of ancient celebrations, particularly military victories. Another common practice that showed respect for and honor to conquerors or royalty was to deck the processional or parade route with garments such as cloaks or coats, flowers and tree branches like palm fronds. 
The adoring subjects would then walk or run ahead of the one being honored and drop these items in their path. I suspect, friends, that this practice might be the origin of our modern rolling out the red carpet and perhaps even strewing flower petals down the aisle at a wedding. Although some of these elements characterized a typical triumphal entry, other elements are disturbingly different, even missing. Can you guess which ones? Remember, this was the annual Passover festival, a major Jewish feast, lasting several days and attended by people from all over the Roman Empire. Friends, this was a peak season for tourists. The streets were wild with excitement. Well, let's continue at Matthew 21.8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. John's gospel clues us in on where some of these people came from. First, pilgrims from distant areas, possibly Galilee, who may have witnessed Jesus' miracles. Second, the multitudes in Bethany who witnessed Lazarus' resurrection. And third, those from Jerusalem and its immediate vicinity. But the curious thing here is that a Roman procession would certainly have been more lavish. At a minimum, it would include a parade of gold-gilded chariots, prancing and ornately robed war horses, trumpets blaring in a well-orchestrated ceremony, and the honored persons surrounded by city officials and celebrities. And this is why today's special program is called Palms, Pomp, and Circumstance, Triumph of a Different Kind. And like most official processions or parades today, a parade route's final destination is usually the hallowed halls of a government seat or a capitol building. But something different was going on, wasn't it, friends? Something different was occurring on that fateful Palm Sunday as Jesus rode down the route to Jerusalem. Because, instead of the customary ostentatious display, Jesus chose to make his grand entrance on a common beast of burden, a donkey, and a young colt, no less, a colt on which no one had ever ridden. No celebrities to speak of surrounded Jesus, but rather a band of peasant fishermen, rural Galileans, and a former tax collector were his entourage. When Jesus' parade came to a screeching halt, it was not at one of Rome's prestigious political power centers, but rather at the national worship center of the Jews, the temple courts. And friends, what does Jesus do next? He basically scolds the money changers for desecrating the court of the Gentiles, an area allocated for prayer, an area that had been turned into a shopping mall, exchanging currency at exorbitant rates. Friends, are you seeing the rich symbolism in Jesus' various gestures here? There's a paradox as well, Jesus allowing himself to be hailed as king, yet contrasting himself with a conquering king by riding on an animal that symbolized gentleness, humility, and service. 
Friends, we must see that Jesus' gestures were all designed to correct the misperceptions of a Messiah figure that was already in full swing in the first century. The Jews of the day were salivating for a messianic deliverer. They could taste it. It was on the tip of their tongues. The term Messiah had become a dangerous term. It developed overtones of military insurrection, political intrigue, and government overthrows. In other words, deliverance or rescue from national oppression. Messiah became a loaded term, highly charged with subversive connotations, and Jesus knew that all along. This helps us understand why Jesus, on a few occasions, goes out of his way to discourage people from broadcasting he is the Messiah. Remember Peter's famous confession? In response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, after that incredible revelation, who could have imagined that Jesus would warn his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah? Matthew 16.20 says, Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Isn't it interesting? Jesus did this with his disciples, the common people, and even demons. In Luke's account of Jesus' exorcism ministry in Luke 4, Luke records demons were coming out of many people and declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus would not allow the demons to speak anymore because they knew him to be the Messiah. Friends, the only reasonable and rational explanation I can discern from the context of Jesus' ministry and the first century perception of his followers is that Jesus dissuaded disciples, the disenfranchised, and the demons from using that loaded term, Messiah, because it had already become loaded with political and national overtones, overtones of bringing earthly and national salvation or deliverance or rescue from oppression, particularly Roman oppression. And this is another reason, friends, that I believe Matthew was selective in how much he quoted from Zechariah 9.9. One key phrase was curiously omitted by Matthew, that key phrase being righteous and having salvation. I propose that a possible explanation for Matthew's omission here is that he was keenly aware of the skewed perceptions the Jews had developed regarding the term Messiah. I believe he wanted to downplay the salvation-deliverance connection to ensure his audience would not read into his gospel that the deliverance Jesus was bringing was a political or national deliverance. After all, they could easily recall what God did through Moses at the Red Sea, especially when Moses said to the people in the face of the Egyptian army on their heels to bring them back to slavery in Egypt, stand still and see the salvation, in other words, deliverance and rescue that the Lord will bring you today. The Israelites of that day certainly understood salvation to mean being delivered or rescued from a military enemy, and not the salvation from sin we commonly associate with the term. Friends, Jesus came first to conquer sin and death, to bring spiritual deliverance and salvation to his people. 
not to overthrow the existing Roman political order by military force. I find it absolutely amazing that even after Jesus' resurrection and nanoseconds before his ascension back to the Father, the disciples asked Jesus this inane question found in Acts 1-6 after he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This notion is reinforced in Luke 24 with his account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember this story, right? It's Luke 24, 13 through 35. Please read the full account because the key statement I'll call our attention to is verses 20 and 21, where the two disciples say to Jesus, he was a prophet, meaning Jesus. Remember, friends, Jesus hid his identity from them initially. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now listen carefully to what comes next. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Did you hear their hopes expressed in that reply? A hope that was totally rooted in national deliverance or rescue from the iron hand of Roman oppression. They didn't see redemption as being redeemed from the slave market of sin. They likely didn't even see their need for spiritual salvation, did they? Can't we tell they were salivating for an earthly redemption? Earthly salvation? Salivating for that final rescue, that military overthrow. Friends, when we consolidate all the Hosanna or praise statements of the four Gospels, aside from Matthew's, we get these additional cries from Mark, Luke, and John. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel. And let me just say here that our English word Hosanna needs some unpacking. The Hebrew and Aramaic original here is actually two words. Hebrew is Yasha Na and the Aramaic is Hoshia Na. Yasha and Hoshia have camouflaged within them the name Yeshua and Yah. These are language derivatives of the word for salvation, and Yeshua should sound familiar to some of you. It's Jesus' Hebrew name, which according to Matthew one twenty one, gives us Jesus' name and mission, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yah may even sound familiar. It's the poetic shortened form of God's covenant name, Yahweh. This short form is littered throughout the Psalms. So Jesus' name literally means God saves or God is salvation. Now this little word, na, packs a big punch and is critical here to fully grasp what these praise statements of the crowd were implying. Na is what gives the word Hosanna its sense of urgency. And why scholars believe the best translation of na is now. So the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, expressing their sense of urgency in wanting this earthly deliverance now. We can easily interpret their statement to mean, Messiah, bring deliverance to us now. We want it right here, right now. After all, the Jews waited hundreds of years for this moment. And you know what? 
the Pharisees and religious leaders knew exactly what those hosannas and praise statements implied. They knew these cries were modified versions of Psalm one eighteen twenty five through twenty nine and first Samuel thirteen thirteen and fourteen. How do we know this? Because Luke nineteen thirty nine and forty adds this reply by the Pharisees to these praise statements by the crowd and Jesus' disciples. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if these keep quiet, the stones will cry out. But let me give you a teaser, because Psalm 118.22 refers to the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Then in verse 23 we read, Yahweh, save us, grant us success, or Yahweh, Hoshia, na, ding, ding, ding. Then verse 27 says, The Lord, Yahweh, is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Ding, ding, ding. See how messianic this all is? The religious leaders were not stupid. You see, friends, the crowd's cries were not, Lord, save me now. In other words, save me from my sins, forgive me now, but rather save us now, save Israel now, deliver Israel from Rome once and for all. Sadly, the crowd's outward cry did not lead them to desiring the inward condition. And friends, this skewed inward condition, even on the part of the disciples, is reinforced by three seemingly unimportant elements that characterize this Palm Sunday account. The first element being the cult. And friends, all three elements I will cover contrast the outward display with the inward disposition. And the fact that the presence of one does not necessarily guarantee the presence of the other. So we'll see the cult the palms, and the stones. And for the cult, only Luke 19.35 mentions that the disciples put Jesus on the cult. And the significance of this seemingly unimportant element is the disciples' action reflected that they shared the same sentiment as the crowds. Why would Luke alone sneak this idea into the story? Because I believe his point is that everybody wanted Jesus on that cult. Jesus let them put him on the cult. But friends, Jesus knew they were exalting him at the wrong time. It was his time to humble himself. Read Philippians 2, 7 and 8 and note the sequence the Father had for Jesus. The bulk of this crowd that began shouting hosannas one week later shouted, Crucify him, incited by the religious leaders. So from the cult we move to the second seemingly insignificant element, the palms. Matthew 21.8 says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John 12, 12 adds, the crowds took palm branches. Waving palm branches certainly demonstrated their outward religious zeal. But did the crowd really know inwardly what was happening? Did they really understand Jesus' mission? In Isaiah forty nine sixteen, Yahweh says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You see, it's easy to wave palm branches. They're not a part of our body. We'll eventually discard them until next year, and then we'll wave them again. 
But how quickly are we to spread our human palms out and have them nailed to a cross and die to sin and self, becoming living sacrifices, per Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let Galatians 2, 20 also speak to us here. Well, the third seemingly insignificant element is the stones. Luke tells us the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for joining in with the crowds and their hosannas. Jesus' now famous reply is, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Think back to when Jesus pronounced his woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, concluding with, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Jesus' cry that the stones will cry out convicts the Pharisees about the stones they were that, that were used to silence those who cried out for God in the past, the prophets. Now in their place, the stones are crying out against them. One last stone, one last prophet crying out is Jesus. And they still want to silence him and his disciples because he comes in the name of Yahweh. So are we like the cult, not resisting its master? Are we like the palms, mere branches? Or are our palms pierced with nails like our master? Are we like stones, silencing and rejecting our master's message? It's our decision. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're near the end of today's program. We'll close with an email where you may write me. Remember, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. And A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. So please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com